for joining me. We're in Psalm 50, and this has been a rich journey. I hope you've had a great weekend. Um, Dana and I are, by this point, a couple of weeks into our extended break. First time in 32 years of marriage and ministry that we've really uh, had some more of an extended break. I'm thankful for our church family and our deacons to allow it and, uh, and arrange for it to happen. And we're praying that it will be deeply restorative and uh, refocusing and uh, help us to start our second decade at Emmanuel um, in God's grace. We're so thankful for what he's done in 10 years. And we dream for the next 10. We look forward to it and how quickly time flies. And um, so thankful for all the good things. Last night, my granddaughter, Charlie, lost her first tooth. And I got it on video. So um, <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun to uh, to witness that. She's been waiting a long time for that tooth to come out, and we're glad that it did. Hope you had a great day in church. Uh, you can catch our live stream archive or um, um, Monday Night Live. It'll rewind tonight again at uh, 7 o'clock. But right now, let's go to Psalm 50, and let's start our new week by continuing through this psalm. And we're now in the sort of the latter half of the psalm. God has been introduced as a, a just judge that's going to vet the worship of his people. He has then, in verses uh, 7 through 15, essentially said, I don't need more ritual. I need, I want your heart. And I want a wonderful relationship, a full of wonder relationship with you, in which you are naturally, organically thankful and expressive of that thanks. Naturally, organically devoted and express, expressive of that devotion um, and and then naturally organically dependent um, in in times of desperation especially in days of trouble you'll call on me and you'll experience my deliverance we talked about different kinds of deliverance and then um, God turns his attention to what he calls the wicked we define who the wicked are um, and if there's any question about now this is specifically unbelief uh, because unbelief, uh, belief is the cure for um, for my crimes against God. Uh, I cannot undo these. I cannot undo my sin. It's done. But God can uh, forgive, forget, remove my sin. Okay, through Jesus, through His covenant sacrifice provided through Jesus on the cross, and my faith in that sacrifice. That's the uh, what we call the substitutionary atonement. Okay. Jesus is my substitute atoning for my crimes against God. And my faith in him is uh, the good news uh, that, that, that brings me life in him. And that's what moves me from in God's categories, a definition by definition wicked to by definition righteous. But if there's any doubt as to our intrinsic guilt before God, this passage would be one of uh, the Bible's uh, clearest indictments on all of humanity, okay, um, that in this particular case, this is Hebrews that are going through motions, but they're clearly unbelieving, and they're clearly um, following after sin in their core belief. Uh, they're hypocritical, okay? So verse uh, 69 of the wicked, what hast thou do to declare my statutes or takest my covenant in thy mouth? They're speaking covenant but they're not believing covenant, okay? Verse 17, they hate instruction. They cast his words off. They don't believe his truth. Uh, they're thieving. They're dishonest. 
that that shadows forward into the time when Jesus came in and said, "You've made my house a den of thieves." See, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reference in the New Testament back to the Old Testament, and the reason is that those uh, teachers of the law, those leaders, those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those rulers who were turning God's house into a den of thieves would have remembered, there would have been these triggers in their minds, and one of them would have been this uh, indictment that Jesus really was saying they're wicked. You've turned my house into a den of thieves, ties back to this verse 18, when thou sawest a thief, thou consentest with him, and has been partaker with adulterers. That also would have been convicting to them. Um, so adulterous generation, uh, I think were the words of Jesus. Number, uh, number 19, verse 19, thou givest thy mouth to evil, thy tongue frameth deceit. I think the, um, one of the key operatives there is you give, like you're, you're wholly committed, you're dedicating, your mouth is completely surrendered to the influence of evil. This isn't, um, this isn't you slipped up, you fell. This is, no, you're, com- you're, 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 you're immersed, you're completely dedicated to a life and a communication pattern, a message, frankly, of evil. My t- and thy tongue frameth deceit, lies, pathological lies. Verse 20, thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. So hateful, vengeful, a spiteful, scornful spirit. This is indicative of a heart that's lost or a heart that does that is guilty before God. By the way, I realize in some respects, like reading the Ten Commandments or like reading Romans 1 through 3, uh, there's like who hasn't ever told a lie, right? Who hasn't ever had a, a, a fractured relationship uh, where there was scorn or spite? Um, so in some sense, this psalm is declaring the whole of humanity guilty, which brings us back to God's judgment, consuming fire, because in that judgment, there is a consuming fire that would consume the soul of the wicked. Uh, God calls that in Revelation, the lake of fire. Jesus called it hell. So there is a consuming fire to, to truly be concerned about, but there also is a covenant of sacrifice that rescues us. So the gospel's woven all in here, but the guilt pattern here, is what we're unfolding. Verse 21, these things hast thou done, and I kept silence. And thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now, this is a pivotal verse, okay? So God has, in verses 16 to 20, he's leveled the charges. And He's the judge, as we saw in verse 1 through 7. He's the final authority. What God says about my reality and my condition spiritually is true. I can argue with it. I can disagree with it. That's irrelevant. Truth is true, okay? And so God, as the final authority to whom I will give an account, says to unbelievers, here's my indictment against you, um, and you thought I didn't. Verse 21 is interesting because um, there's a sense to it in which he's almost saying, you thought I didn't care or you thought I approved. I think there's a rationale sometimes in the unbelieving, hypocritical life that's going through the motions that God's okay with me. And God, God is, because he hasn't uh, expedited judgment, because there's um, ongoing uh, prosperity 
in the midst of evil, in the midst of what I know is wrong, we just assume God's on our side and that he's okay with it. I'm not talking about believers. I'm talking about unbelievers, okay? Um, these things you've done, God says, verse 21, and, and he kept silence. And I think it's really important that we reckon with the reality that God's silence is not God's disengagement or God's lack of passionate care or intervention. It doesn't, just because God's not, doesn't appear to be doing something about evil right now doesn't mean he isn't going to, okay? He, he has good reasons for waiting. Um, and you say, well, I don't understand them. Why doesn't God intervene now? Well, my friend, you don't have to understand them. You just have to know that's how he's operating right now. He has promised you he's going to intervene. He will not forever keep silent. Thou thoughtest I was altogether such an one as thyself. You thought I was like you, God's saying but I will reprove. So the believer can take hope here in this. When we see wickedness rising and seeming to win in our culture, wokeism, um, perversion, uh, murder, I mean, you, you name it, it's just thriving in our culture. And we, we, we concern ourselves with how do we win this culture war? God says, you know what? I, I, may, be, I may appear to be silent right now, but I'm going to reprove this. I'm going to make everything, uh, I'm going to bring everything to the light. I'm going to execute justice and judgment on all of it. This would take you back to the first seven verses where you see God coming uh, in a different, so the judgment in verses one through seven, as you unfold that through New Testament theology, you've got two judgments. You've got the judgment for believers, which you've already covered, which is the, um, the great white throne judgment. I'm not sorry, the judgment seat of Christ. Now I'm going to confuse you. The judgment seat of Christ is where believers are called uh, to give account for their lives, their works, their service to the Lord. And our impure service is, is consumed and our pure uh, service is good, uh, gold, silver, precious stones. And we're rewarded. And this is where God wipes every tear from our eyes. So that judgment is going to be regretful, remorseful for a time but it's not going to be vengeful. God's not going to consume us. It's not going to be punishment because Jesus took our, our, he bore the wrath. Okay. It's going to be an accounting where we see um, a lot of frivolity and folly burned up in our, from our lives, but also some good things remain. And then we're going to be acknowledged. Our faith is going to be rewarded. And then we're going to cast our rewards before Jesus feet. So that's the, that's the uh, judgment seat of Christ. The unbelievers judgment is at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. And the Bible calls this, in Revelation, the great white throne judgment. And it is a final accounting of all humanity, of all sin, of all wickedness. And it is finally, ultimately reproved, and what God says here, set in order before thine eyes. This is the moment when those who did not believe, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And in that moment, as a believer, you will see God fulfill his promise and you will see him set in order all the wrongs before your very eyes. Now that's a wonderful promise. It's a warning to unbelievers and it's a promise to believers. And it's one that can hold us and we hold on together and it kind of frames us. It helps us stay on mission. It helps us not get too distracted into uh, minor uh, small battles or culture wars. It helps us to not, it helps us to see 
the mission. It helps us to see people through the mission. Why is God waiting? Why does he appear to keep silent? Because right now believers on his, in his world are his mouthpiece. And his message right now is mercy. And you are his mouthpiece today. His message one day will be judgment. But right now it's mercy. So go share it with somebody today.